I'm walking all alone down my yellow brick road and I stomp to the beat of my own drum. I got my pockets full of dreams and they're busting at the seams going. Welcome to Stacked Keys Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stackhouse. This is a podcast to feature women who are impressive in the work world or in raising a family or who have hobbies that make us all feel encouraged. Want to hear what makes these women passionate to get up in the morning or what maybe they wish they'd known a little bit earlier in their lives? Grab your keys and stomp to your own drum. I welcome my guest today. It's very exciting. I have kind of peered into her world a little bit, but today I have Wendy Rodrigue Magnus, and I am thrilled to have you today, Wendy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Amy. Well, tell me a little bit about you, and if somebody said, Wendy, who are you? Who are you both professionally and personally? What would your response be? Hmm. Well, hmm. you know, it's an interesting thing because um, I have found myself in um, situations where I was um, attacked in a way where um, uh, it was put to me, um, how could you do that? Or what did you mean by that? Or those sorts of things. And I found myself recently saying in response to that, because I know who I am. I know who I am. So who am I? Well, for one thing, I used to wonder if I was defined by my husband. Um, I thought a lot about that. My late husband is artist George Rodrigue, um, who most people know through his blue dog paintings. He's also very accomplished with his Cajun paintings. Um, I wish you could see in the room there where I'm sitting right now. I'm actually in the Rodrigue room of our home, and I've got one of his uh, Cajun paintings from 1971 behind me on one wall and and a later blue dog painting that's quite a fabulous gigantic seven foot piece behind me on the other wall and so I'm actually not um not intimidated or upset to say that I am defined by my husband in many ways because I'm an expert on him I'm an expert on on his life and his work, um, I would say the foremost expert. I, I, I mean, I was right there with him all the time. We were real partners in life. Did I paint any pictures? No, not at all. But I actually was privileged, um, well, many times to watch him paint and every now and again to be asked um, for my opinion. What do you think? Oh, wow. What I mean, a lot. Yeah. So, and who else am I? Well, um, I'd like to think that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty authentic because um, I've been through a lot of things in my life. I'm sure like many of your listeners and like any of your listeners who haven't been, you will be, take my word for it. It happens to all of us. And um, one of the things that I've found that happens on life's journey when you go through, particularly when you go through really difficult periods that you don't think you're going to pull out of. Um, When my husband died, I did not think I would pull out at all. 
In fact, I was convinced of it. Nobody could have convinced me otherwise. And I did. And I pulled out in such a big way, in some ways to where I'm, I'm far more confident in who I am and what I put out there today than I ever was before. Um, I'm very happy. I feel blessed. Think something I, I never thought I would feel because I felt so upset and so destroyed after that. And so, so that's who I am too. I am a blessed, happy, fulfilled person who is defined by her husband and by her life, but also by her own ideas and her own spirit. And today I am married to one of my late husband's close friends who is also an artist. And so now I get to learn all of those wonderful things and be a part of his world too. I don't know, Fabulous. Long, long answer. That's a great <laughs> answer. And, and it's, it's really interesting because a lot of women do find themselves so connected to their husbands that that's how they define themselves and they can't take something and go a different direction. And you've done that. You've incorporated um, your late husband into your current life. So you didn't just put it in a drawer and, and, and go on and, and, one of the, I have so many things running through my head's head, um, but you had um, a journal that you were working on, and and as he was dying, you were having conversation about how you would survive and live. So, have some of those writings that you jotted down then just kind of come off the page for you? Um. Yes. I mean, there are certain things that I remember so distinctly um, that I use sometimes in my presentations. I do, um, for your listeners, I do a, a lot of school visits, or I did uh, pre-COVID and will again after COVID, of course. Um, in fact, I just pre-COVID visited my 91st school in three years, which I was pretty excited about in eight states. And um, we, we, we visit in small groups and I've, I've visited with over 40,000 kids now. So it's quite a few small groups, like yeah. some schools, I'll be at them for as long as a week in order to hit all of the kids. And there are certain things from that period that you were asking me about that um, I started pulling out of my, out of my notebooks and sharing with them. Uh, it was difficult to do it first. In fact, it still oh, is. But the reason I did it is because I bring original paintings into the classrooms and I let those paintings take us on a journey, us as in the children and myself, and oftentimes the teachers and sometimes parents and community folks come in and we end up with a whole crew and everybody sees different things in the works. And part of the whole lesson here is that um, not only are there no mistakes in art, but there's no mistake in how you interpret the art. Um, what you see in it is every bit as valid as what the artist did. But much to my surprise, oftentimes those journeys took us um, with the artist, the catalyst, into discussions of loss, uh, grief, death, illness, and joy, and life, and living. And so um, I'll share with you for an example from one of those journals, if that's okay. Oh, definitely. Um, one of the things I, I have come to where I, I end almost every life and legacy visit with is this story where um, George was in the hospital in the last few weeks of his life. He had lung cancer and it had entered his cerebral spinal fluid. So um, it had, I always explained for the kids, had, if they imagined it had traveled up his spine and then surrounded his brain and swelled his meninges. And um, he was still George, but he had a very hard time 
turning his thoughts into words that could actually come out of his mouth. Um, he knew he could speak and he knew what the words were, but it, it, that whole process. Yeah, just kind of scrambled. And so the time that he would speak the most when he did was late at night and it was very quiet and there weren't interruptions. And I would crawl in bed with him every night in the hospital and he had this big, enormous rib cage. And for some reason that's important to me in the story. And I would put my head on his rib cage every night in the bed and I would match my breath to his because I was imagining, I always tell the kids, you know, imagination, very important. Uh, it was Einstein who said that imagination is more important than knowledge. Imagine that from Einstein. Mm. Anyway, I would imagine um, that my breath was his breath, that I was giving him my strength. And one night I said, not expecting him to answer, uh, George, are you scared? And he didn't say anything. And then all of a sudden, he said, no. And I'd lifted up my head and I looked at his face and his eyes were big and bright and round. He looked so beautiful. He looked so childlike. He looked like little baby George from the little photographs of him. And he said, it's an adventure. And I said, and of course I was crying by then, but George, we take all of our adventures together. And he said, but you can't come on this one, Wendy. Not yet. And I have lots of things written like that. I wrote down everything George said for many years, but certainly in that hospital, I wrote down every word he said, and my journals are just full of my scribbles. I mean, I have a box, huge box of stacks of journals. And people have asked me um, if, the, if I would turn them into a book because I have written a book about mine and George's life, but it stops um, with his passing away. Um, and so, or actually just prior to. And so I do believe that's coming for me, but it's very, I, opening those journals is so tough. So I find myself pulling out little nuggets, um, yeah. like, and there are several, but like the one I just shared with you. And I have found that it was extremely difficult the first few times I shared it. I, could, I couldn't get through it. But then it got better and better and better. And so that is my way of moving towards um, really sharing all of them with the world because George was very wise. He was so real, sincere, and he wasn't afraid. And there are many things to be shared. And I think that many people would appreciate and could help people also um, by reading. Oh, them. definitely. I mean, just the, the following your Facebook feeds and some of the things that you share like that, I can't imagine the number of people that you touch, people that don't even realize that they have some of those thoughts. But, but can reach into their lives and their loss and their experiences. But that's kind of tough. So you, you, you become incredibly vulnerable in doing that. Um, and, and, and you're in a, another relationship. And so how do you make sure that you give the balance and the, I, I don't even know what the word is, but how do you make sure that you don't get so engulfed with, with your past, with George, that you lose in what your current um, life is? Well, I'm so glad that you asked me that because my husband, Douglas Magnus, is 
truly one of a kind. I mean, I mean, we're all one of a kind, but he is remarkable because I can't tell you how many people ask him, ask me, ask him especially, how can you do it? And several things about that. One is that George is not my past life. Douglas and George are both my current life. I love them both. I don't love George any less because he's passed away. I love him just as much now as I ever did. And I don't love Douglas any less than I love George. Um, love is infinite. You know, we can love and love and love. It just keeps growing. It doesn't have a cap on it. Um, and an interesting thing, and I would run and get it if I could show your viewers, but um, my husband is a, my current husband, Douglas Magnus, is a, a silversmith and jeweler and he made um, my wedding ring and surprised me with it and he's very fond of a very rare kind of turquoise called Sirius turquoise mostly because he has the mind for the Sirius turquoise and so it's a it's a extremely rare magnificent turquoise found only here um, at this mine in New Mexico which was actually the original mine for Tiffany and company which is quite remarkable oh, wow. from back at the turn of the night of the 20th century. So anyway, he made this ring. It is so magnificent. And he cut it in three sides because he said, there are three of us in our marriage. Oh, And that is how much Douglas loves George. And I'll tell you uh, two more things about that. One is that um, when I introduced Douglas in public, to adult audiences in particular. And I, I did this, I tested it on a very important audience in New Orleans a few years ago. I know it was for, um, it was for a magazine. I had been um, given a really nice uh, New Orleans award about the person to watch in New Orleans. And um, I had that like the VIPs of New Orleans were out there and I stood up and I, I ended my speech with this. I said, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge this person. I said, it takes a very strong man to support his wife on the road while she speaks of her love for someone else. And I introduced Douglas. He got a standing ovation. And then nobody wanted to talk to me afterwards. Everybody <laughs> wanted to talk to him. He got covered with people and it was fantastic and so fun. So we've kind of integrated that into how we share our lives with others because it seems to work pretty well. And then the other thing I would tell you, which is very key here, is that Douglas has known George longer than me. They first met in 1986 here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, through a mutual friend of ours. Any of your friend, any of your listeners there who are familiar with Santa Fe, especially old Santa Fe, would know of a very famous restaurant here called the Pink Adobe and the Dragon Room Bar. And the Grand Dame de Santa Fe, who founded it all, her name was Rosalie Murphy, originally from New Orleans, ironically. And that she was a very good mutual friend of Douglas's and George's, and that's how they met. They have been very close friends. In fact, Douglas was one of George's closest friends since 1986. I didn't meet George until 1991 when I went to work for him and we started dating in 93, which is when he first brought me to Santa Fe. And I met Douglas at that time also. And we all became very good friends. And we spent a lot of time together over the years, especially um, we, George and I came to Santa Fe regularly because George made his bronzes here. A lot of people don't know that George created bronze, did bronze work, but he did some magnificent bronzes. In fact, there's some right behind me that only oh, wow. you can see it. Pretty fabulous. Yeah. And so we came here quite regularly. And um, also George would commission um, 
jewelry from Douglas. Um, he made a whole line of blue dog jewelry, also of jewelry based on his oak trees, because Douglas is really a, re a renowned silversmith. He's quite exceptional. And so George had a lot of respect for Douglas as an artist, so much so that he's the only artist he ever collaborated with. Oh, wow. So That's... there's a whole history there. And I'll tell you, when we, um, the fact that Douglas and I are together, nobody is more shocked about it than we are. But when it happened, it just happened all of a sudden. And it was so miraculous and amazing. And there was no stopping it. It was yeah. just, and um, at 70 years old, Douglas got married for the first time in his life. He's never been married. Oh, wow. Isn't it? That is a sweet yeah. story. After all that. So anyway, that's how it can happen. Basically, yeah. in a nutshell, all that information in a nutshell is that Douglas loves George too. Yeah. So that's how it works. Well, and you can, it, it is evident just being um, around you or just hearing your stories. I, I, I think it, an individual in an audience could pick up on, on that and um, the love and the respect when you and George were together, you narrated a lot of his work and you were uh, involved somewhat in his work and, and started out working for him. Are you in that same capacity or role um, now? I mean, you're, you're still talking yeah. George's work and then are you between the two of the artists? Are you a part <laughs> of both of those worlds? I am not so much with Douglas, um, simply because as a silversmith, there's not as much um, going on in terms of like, you know, school visits and um, museum exhibitions and things like that. Not yet, that is, but yeah, it's coming. <laughs> sure, it's, it's coming. definitely coming and it is. It's on the radar. Um, but oh, yes, we've done. Um, I've done with my curator of exhibitions. Her name is Dana Holland Bikert. She is located um, for your listeners, she's located in Memphis, but many of you may know the Brooks Museum in Memphis, which is such a fabulous muse museum. And she was curator of exhibitions there for, um, I don't know, 10 or 11 years, something like that. And I first met her back in 2000 and I guess it was five, maybe five or six, when we started working on an exhibition for the Dixon Gallery and Gardens Museum, also located in Memphis. And then later she was co-curator for the New Orleans Museum of Art exhibition. These were all massive George Rodrigue retrospective exhibitions. So anyway, we have a long history together. And so she and I have continued to do museum exhibitions together. And we've done a number of wonderful ones since George passed away. Um, one, one of my favorites was all of his late works, most done in the last year of his life, which you would think, you know, George was diagnosed with his cancer in May of 2012. Um, he passed away in December of 2013. You would have thought it, with it, that sort of a diagnosis, I don't know what you would have thought, but maybe that there would be a change in his work towards something really um, affected by that diagnosis. And it was, but in the most joyous way. I mean, they are in some ways his most prophetic works, his most powerful works. Um, it is definitely the works of a man who is creating, knowing that he may not have much longer to live and knowing that this is his, if he was ever going to do it, this is his opportunity yeah, to express and scream to the world. This is what I can do. And this is what I want to show you and share with you. And I hope you'll appreciate and learn from it. And 
And that's what happened. They're incredible works. So, and many of them great, big and large. So we did several exhibitions with those pieces um, at museums. And we've done also early exhibitions of his landscapes at the LSU Museum of Art. We did exhibitions in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area, a great little museum, the Sand Springs Cultural and Historical Museum of these shiny, happy blue dog pieces, which are all in reflective pieces, reflective paper and chrome, George called it. Um, the sort of pieces George used to put in, in children's hospitals and they are installed in children's hospitals around the country because the kids can see their reflection along with the blue dog. His oh, hope wow. was it would bring them joy and happiness. So yes, the answer is I continue to do a lot of exhibitions. I plan on many more post COVID of course. And then of course my school visits are huge and those are all mini exhibitions because I literally bring, I mean, I bring museum quality artworks from my private collection originals into the schools and that's how I do my presentations. There's no PowerPoint. There's, you know, none of that, no computer, none of that. It is completely unplugged. Um, yeah. I like to call it slow art. So I continue and that is my main thing. And Douglas is with me a lot when I'm on the road. He's an incredible photographer. My husband, he started off as a photographer um, during the counterculture movement. And in fact, his works are housed here in um, Santa Fe at the New Mexico History Archives, and they use them often in exhibitions. So he is very wonderful at capturing a scene without people knowing, including myself. So yeah. he's been great at capturing this as we go, which is, of course, a real art form in and of itself. Yeah, um, you posted a picture, I think, today on your Facebook about one that you didn't know where the picture came from, and he had evidently taken the picture. So that was kind That's of an correct. interesting. It was from 2004. Yeah. He had taken of George and I didn't, I had never even seen it before. Yeah. And he was so shocked that I came across it too. It fell out of a book when I was organizing some bookshelves, but, and that reminds me of the other outlet for me, of course, is my blog, which was very active in George's lifetime. And then I kept trying to return and trying to return. And it just, it is so hard for me to go into that place. But I am a person who is very serious about New Year's resolutions. So I think really yeah. hard about them before I make them. And one of my New Year's resolutions this year was I'm going to, I'm going to blog once a month. I started the first one posted today. Um, and it's at legacyarttour.com. And it's my old blog, Musings of an Artist's Wife, it was called. And in the, in the early days, it, um, it was George's idea. I started it in 2009. I used to blog twice a week. It was full-time job. It was huge. And the purpose of the blog in the beginning was to um, share the history of George's life and works. So I would pull a particular painting and analyze it all the way into the ground and tell you everything I possibly knew about it and interview George about it and all those things. So those are all still posted there. But I see the blog now going in a different direction, um, incorporating more um, of other artists including Douglas, for example, um, but also getting increasingly personal, including some of those journal entries that you were mentioning. Yeah. So I will, I'm determined to go down that path. Well, it is, that is a, those are some raw emotions. So how do you, how do you protect your heart? Do you just go ahead and just plunge in and, and just work through the emotions? Um, oftentimes I can't do it. And so I back up. That's why I've started so many that I didn't finish. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you what's helped me the most. Um, 
the support of loving people in my life. Um, not only my husband, Douglas, but uh, my sister, Heather, very much so she's and she's my partner in life and legacy and she does my website and um, answers a lot of the letters that come in and is scheduling and all that sort of thing she's been she's been a wonderful wonderful support all the way um, but not only loving loving people in my life but also I have a very active yoga and meditation practice and I have for many years and my teacher um, uh, teachers, I should say, because it's actually both of them, uh, husband and wife team, Sarah and Ty Powers, they live in Malta, of all things. I haven't gotten over there. But it's been interesting because she, she um, like yes, yesterday, I think it was, or day before, she did a women's meditation. And it was cool to go live on with her in Malta. And there were people from all over the world. And we all were together for 30 minutes as she talked us through. But the other thing, uh, the real thing that has been pivotal for me since COVID, that has been a big change with that, is she did a whole um, series of teachings on what are called um, the Lojong, um, the Lojong sayings, and they are Buddhist mantras, really, um, that are designed to for you to to sort of contemplate throughout the day, maybe throughout the week or a season or a year or something like that. And these teachings have been incredible to me, um, incredibly valuable. And I have really embraced them. They speak to me. And um, I don't know, they, they, they have changed, changed my life in many ways because um, they have made me less afraid to come from a place of loving kindness in every aspect of my life. I'm not saying I'm always successful at that, but it's the goal. So um, I believe I said in the beginning that I had been attacked about something recently. Yeah. Um, the goal is not to find a solution necessarily when those things happen, but to already be prepared for it and to have your instinctive um, reaction to be one uh, of loving kindness and coming from a place that um, it doesn't damage you so much and doesn't damage others either. Um, yeah. So that's been very helpful to me. I have to say these Buddhist teachings, the Lojong and, and, and my practice, and I'm devoted to it. I, um, I spend between two and three hours a day on my mat. Oh, wow. Um, and I can't wait to get there. It's a very safe place for me. And I get there. I feel um, no matter what else is going on in the world, I, it takes me a while, but I, I take all those things in my head and I, I put them over on the side, right outside the mat and just leave them over there until I'm finished. And then yeah. I can think about them afterwards. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things about yoga, um, I have a son who uh, recently had hip surgery and he was telling me he practices yoga and he practices jujitsu. And um, he was telling me that the yoga helped him really isolate different parts and areas of his body you know, his mind and his body and and it it helped him in his recuperation so it it's a lot of mindset but mind self mind control and self body control so but it's a discipline yeah. yes it is it's a discipline and also a real dedication i find um it's a it's interesting because after george died um, 
Sarah, my teacher, she texted me many times. Uh, and again, I, I, I usually only see her once every couple of years or something because I'll, I'll see her at a retreat, but she's my teacher because she's the one who, who inspires me the most. I, I, I just relate to her teaching so much. And so she is with me in some way or another every single day um, through a lot of her online teachings for sure. Yeah. Um, but anyway, she texted me every day, many times, stay close to the floor, Wendy. And I knew what she meant. And some days, because I, I was in such a place when George died, I just, could not i mean life was life was over i just couldn't imagine moving on and i would um sometimes it would take me all day till five or six in the evening and i would finally crawl from my bed to the floor and i would start my practice and do you know amy every single time i finished and every time I felt better. So yoga is, yes, all those things that you said and, and more. It's and amazing. more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that goes yeah. pretty deep. Um, so, Wendy, what were you like as a kid? Are you a <laughs> totally different person than, than you were growing up? You should be asking my sister that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to. Siblings always have a different take. <laughs> On second thought, no. Yeah. Um, what was I like? I was a brown noser in school. I was always the teacher's pet, for sure. You know, I was one of those really obnoxious straight A students who couldn't take enough classes and volunteered at the library. And, you know, I was... It was <laughs> Pretty, I would, I, milking back on it, I was absolutely obnoxious. So, <laughs> and I was also uh, very self-conscious about my looks because I was very tall. I hit 5'10 by the time I hit the seventh grade and was really skinny. So, I mean, just terribly. You can imagine because when you spring up that fast, that young, so you know, you're like 5'10 and 90 pounds and you're just this stick figure walking around. And I was taller than everybody in the school. I mean, I was taller than most of my teachers. It was terrible. So um, I was very self-conscious about my looks. I did not feel the least bit comfortable in them. But those things started shifting as I got, as I got older, you know, by senior year and then on into college. But I was still very studious throughout and um, I don't know, I, I liked to be, again, the obnoxious thing. You know, I was in every club that there was. I was constantly, you know, trying to be the, you know, if I was in the Kiets, I wanted to be the president. I was in the band. I absolutely loved the band. Um, I played flute during the symphonic season and piccolo during the marching season. And I loved it. Um, I had a very wonderful childhood. Um, my parents... Um, and this was not a wonderful thing, of course, but my parents divorced when I was six years old. And back at that time, that was 1972, that was, a, it was unusual, especially in our community, because I grew up in an Air Force community in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. My father was um, in the Air Force, in the military, and um, I didn't know anybody else with divorced parents. Nobody. But I didn't think about that. I never did. I mean, it never, I, I think about that now in retrospect. Hey, how about that? Nobody else had divorced parents. I didn't even realize it. And I think the main reason I didn't realize, I mean, my dad was gone by no fault of his own. He was off flying in the military and, you know, got right. transferred. But my mother, 
My mother was so amazing. She was an artist. Her paintings are all over our house. I've done some videos of them on my YouTube channel. So anybody wants to check it out, it's Wendy Rodrigue Magnus, A Life in the Arts. Go see Mignon's paintings. They're amazing. Um, but she also, you know, now when I think back on it, oh my God, she had to go get a job for the first time in her life, raised two little girls. My sister's five years younger than me. I mean, we were little bitty kids, but we were so loved. We were so loved and there wasn't a lot of money, but there was always food on the table. And somehow, you know, even if our, if our Christmas gifts were, you know, the used roller skates this year, we still got the roller skates. And we were happy and loved. And, you know, we lived in Fort Walton Beach, for pity's sake. What a gorgeous place to grow up. And so, yeah, I had a wonderful childhood. Not a complaint. It was great. So you mentioned that she was an artist. Is that where your love from art came from? Oh, yes. Um, in fact, um, my mother's art books, which I still have today. In fact, I was just organizing <laughs> this latest big COVID cleanup, you know, organization thing. Um, um, but her art books were such a big part of our lives. Um, she majored in fine arts at LSU. And I can remember coming home from school. And if I wasn't running straight out to the beach, which was the case, of course, in warm weather, then I was running into our den and pulling an art book down and, and pouring through Michelangelo. And she definitely, yeah, my mother is the one who, who made art an everyday normal part of my life. Like I can't imagine life. Everybody should have a completely art infused life in my opinion. (laughs) Well, and that's kind of what led you to that, the uh, life and legacy foundation and being able to go into the schools, because I remember you saying that um, a lot of kids that you see have never seen an original painting. And that would be hard to even imagine coming out of your home. That's right. Um, It's shocking to me. Um, There's a story that kind of goes along with that early in my early in life and legacy in 2017, when I first really got kicked off with it, I was at a a technical school in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, It's called Caddo Career and Technology Center, and it feeds or it did at that time from 11 different high schools in the Shreveport Bossier area. And this was a commercial art class that had asked me to come and I bring original Rodrigue paintings with me. And um, the first thing I asked the students was, for how many of you is this the first time that you've ever seen an original George Rodrigue painting? Because I thought some of them maybe had been to New Orleans or we did a lot of museum shows over the years in Shreveport, George and I put together and thought maybe. But the whole class raised their hand. Nobody had ever seen one. And then their teacher, interjected and she said one more question for how many of you is this the first time you've ever seen an original painting by anyone and half the class raised their hand a commercial art class for pity's sake you know everything was on the computer everything was digital which is great george used to say the computer is the best artistic tool to come along since the paintbrush he loved working on the computer but this disconnect you know with the actual um tangible original art there is a completely different feeling about all of that and that that experience more than any other convinced me that I was on the right path and that I'm bringing original paintings I don't care I know and you know people have said aren't you afraid I mean you just brought a million dollars worth of art into a school you know that didn't cost a million dollars to build and I'm like you know what no 
what are they supposed to do? They're going to sit on the walls of my house or sit in storage or wait for the next museum show to come along. George would be the first person to say, Wendy, buy a bigger truck. <laughs> Take <laughs> to more. Bigger yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been really great. I, I get ch- such a charge out of bringing the paintings into the schools. And I tell you, it's all different ages and the college kids too. And I take it as a real challenge to, I found eighth grade is the toughest grade, like to get past the, they're trying to be cool for their friends thing or, you know, various things going yeah. on. And boy, I know it when I've got them. And especially it's exciting when afterwards, when they'll come up because they want to see the paintings closer and they want to take selfies with them and they want to see the backs of them and they want to know about the frames and they want, I mean, every single thing you could possibly imagine that you, you wouldn't even necessarily think. And then they're so excited that they can tell me what they see in it and that their answer is right. No matter what. Yeah. That's right. And I've learned more from these kids than I ever thought. It's, it's a wonderful experience. I can't wait. I can't wait till it all gets back going again. And boy, I can't wait. Like I'm sure you feel and all your listeners, boy, to hug people again, huh? It's oh, I know. Just, I know. You know hug is... them, smell their hair and just hold them <laughs> tight. And it'll be good. <laughs> yeah. We've definitely um, had time to think about some of those things that we never ever thought about before and uh, and they will be good to bring back so living with an artist can be a messy place can't it as far as i mean i I guess you had a studio but um was the studio (laughs) an off limits don't touch this don't move that i'm still thinking about this did you want to go in and organize and clean up and 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 with douglas now are there things I mean, he does a lot of carving too. Um, and so you get dust and you have all this. So what's it like to live with an artist? Well, in George's case, his studio was his domain in terms of um, how it was decorated and how it was put together, how it was organized. Um, however, it was certainly not off limits. He was delighted to have me in there. He was delighted particularly in his early years of working, he was delighted to have friends in there with him while he was working. He loved having people around. Um, That changed, I would say in the last 10 to 15 years of his life, George did not want people around anymore while he was working. He was very, he just became, I think he was always serious about his approach. In fact, I'm sure about it. He always was very serious about how he painted. And when he sat down at the easel, Um, However, the distractions became too much. And that became so much so that we moved to California. A lot of people don't know that. We kept our home in New Orleans, but we bought a home in Carmel Valley, California, out in the country. I mean, behind a gate and a long road, and you went way up into the country so that nobody could come knocking on the door. It wasn't going to happen. And he built his dream studio up there. This was in 2001. So I guess it was 12 years. I said 15, but it was 12 years. Yeah. So we just went up there and that was his favorite. I mean, we were there usually about six months out of the year. And that is where he did most of his painting for the last 12 years of his life without interruptions. Um, And yeah, I was always welcome in the studio and hung out with him quite a bit. Now with Douglas, um, it's different. He, when I, when I came to live with Douglas, he lives in this 
fabulous little house, which I'm sitting in right now, that is, in fact, he'd get mad at me if you heard me say that right now, because he'd say, our house, our house, but he was here long before me. And this house, for your listeners, what an unusual place. This is a complete adobe house, the whole house. And it was built over a hundred years ago. And it is the cemetery keeper's house for the oldest Our Lady of Guadalupe cemetery and church in the country. Wow. They That's used to have funerals in, in the very room I'm sitting in right now. Yeah. They used to have funerals in this room, the one I'm sitting in. It is an amazing house. So it's very, as a result, you know, it's got, it's very cozy and these thick, thick, walls and the adobe plaster and the mud brick underneath that and in some places that's exposed you can see it with the hay in it and all of that it's very cool and so in the fireplaces and all of that but anyway my point is back to the studio so when he when I came to live here I was like where are you painting because he also paints and he was painting in this converted garage attached to this house that was also his storage it was pitiful it was absolutely pitiful. I can't imagine, believe he even got to his easel and he paints a lot. He's painted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of paintings. That's why organizing that is a whole other thing. But anyway, so another COVID unexpected blessing is I went in there and it took me four weeks. I cleaned out the entire thing. I gutted it and I put together a studio for him and it was a surprise. I didn't let him go in there while I was working on it till the very end. I had to have his help putting this rug down. So he was so shocked after I cleared it out and I did have to have his help with that, but um, it's magnificent. And now he's in there all the time, but he told me the only thing that he wanted to change in it was that he wanted it to be my studio too. And I don't paint, but I write and I do other things. And so, um, I have a desk in there in my area. And so we, we, we create in there together and it's really fabulous. And his paintings are salon style hung floor to ceiling all around the room. And then there's a whole section. He did a whole section of tribute paintings to George and those are all in there. And they, they kind of segue into some Rodrigue paintings too. So the two of them are represented there. And then with regards to his jewelry, that's his shop which is just across our driveway and it's huge. And he's been renovating that too. It's just at one time he had 18 people working in there for him and now it's just him. So he only makes specialty jewelry items that he really wants to create. He has, we have completely revamped the whole shop. We have it now it's um, storage area for life and legacy. Um, Lots of where I get George's archives organized eventually that's big project too. Um, So it's a constant thing, organizing the art and and putting it all together, but it's very exciting. And I have to say, Douglas has been amazing because to have gone 70 years without being married and then to have me coming in and I'm like, okay, this is going, this is going, going in. He, he's taken it really well and he's actually gotten into it and really enjoyed it. And then you mentioned the stone carving. He does stone carving. He took it up just five years ago, and it's really? incredible. You can always pick up new things. Douglas is 74. He took up stone carving five years ago. And his pieces, I know you've seen some of them on my, um, in my social media, are just phenomenal. But this is the trick with that. There is no stone carving in the house. 
only stone carve outside (laughs) so stone carving is a summer art Uh, (laughs) it's not a winter art (laughs) because we've got snow everywhere right now because yeah it's it is he stone carves the old-fashioned way you know with a hammer and chisel a la michelangelo so it is a it's a mess. I mean, stuff goes everywhere, but it's also magnificent. And, and that sound, that tink, 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 I now think of that as the sound of summer. It's pretty oh, fabulous. That's great. So have <laughs> you tried to get into his head and understand his process as you so well understood George's? So I, I imagine that the, Douglas has a completely different style and, and mindset to how he approaches his art. So have you tried to kind of crack that code? Um, you know, I enjoy it very much. One of the things I enjoy, it's different with both of them, the approach. With George, it was very much talking and writing down everything he said, writing it down. With Douglas, um, boy, I am so into video now. I have enjoyed it. It's become a little art for me. Not that I'm any good at it, but but I love it. And I get really excited about it. And I recognize something right away that, ooh. And so <laughs> I am constantly at the ready to do the videos. So that is how I've learned most of what I've learned with Douglas. I have a long way to go. Um, I won't lie, jewelry is completely foreign to me other than wearing it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but making jewelry is completely foreign to me. So that has been fascinating learning about, you know, Douglas um, actually makes all of his tools. Oh, wow. He, um, he has a giant press. He has, you know, the grinder. He has the buffing wheel. He has, you know, all these different things that I, are. those are all new terms to me. I didn't know what any of those things were. So I'm learning slowly. I feel very amateurish um, in my knowledge but it's fun. It's a fun exploration and I'm learning more. And um, with his paintings, with his paintings, it's also very different because um, Douglas is in men- primarily, he loves to paint on plein air. So he loves to go on site and paint what he sees. George was never like that. George fabricated all of his scenes. A lot of people think that George painted on site because of his Louisiana oak trees and Louisiana scenes, but it's not true. He made up everything. So George, if you had to pinpoint him, I, I would say primarily was a surrealist. He fabricated it. Douglas, it's different. Douglas likes to paint a scene that he sees and then he he breaks down that scene into essential elements. So he's very, they were both very into shape, design, color, um, texture, those sorts of things, but they approached it in completely different ways. One from entirely from his head and one from nature. Yeah. So um, it's been, it's very fun contrasting them and Oh, I bet. I bet that is interesting. And then you coming along and seeing it from um, learning about an art, you, you kind of take somebody who knows nothing with you. And so, I mean, you have some elements, just art in general has some similar thought processes, but, um, but the medium might be different. So um, question, how did you get your job with George? The, when you, when you came to work for him, did you just walk in and say, I'm who you've waited for all your life or how did that go? Um, no, that was not how it happened, but 
that's how it was. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's not how it happened. Um, I was in graduate school in New Orleans at Tulane and um, I really wanted to do museum work. I didn't want to do gallery work. Um, and I had, a, a, I was dating a guy at the time who had a friend who was actually George's um, agent at the time and had the gallery, the Rodri Gallery of New Orleans. Some of your, your um, listeners may remember the original location of the Rodri Gallery of New Orleans. It was at 721 across the street from where it is now. And it was a little bitty small space opened in 1989. I didn't even know George's work. This was in 1991 um, that this guy I was dating made this appointment for me to go and see George's agent because the agent, he said, had some ideas of some places I could go to get some experience to look for museum work. So I walked into the gallery for the first time and saw Rodrigue's work for the first time to go meet with this young man. And George was not there. And I walked in. And at the time, George was still, there were still a lot of his Cajun paintings around. So that the gallery was mostly his Cajun paintings. But on the back wall, huge, was actually that painting. I wish your listeners oh. could see. But that very painting, it's the big one I mentioned in the very beginning. It's called Lugaru. It's just a giant, giant dog very loosely painting painted um, in oil paint it is it's tremendous it's shocking and wonderful and in your face and powerful and it life-changing life-changing for me and it turned out life-changing for George too it's a whole other story I've blogged about it you can go look it up yeah we'll anyway find that. Um, yeah anyway I walked in and before even saying hi to this man I walked right up to this painting and I just oh and it's so big that you're, you're like looking the dog in the eyes. And I put my hands on it, which of course, that you're not supposed to do that. Everybody knows that. But I just, I just couldn't help it. I'd never seen anything like this in my life. And I'll never forget because this guy, his name was Richard. He came up to me and he said, um, what do you think? And I said, what is it? And he said, it's the blue dog. And I said, it's the greatest painting I've ever seen in my entire life. And he said, I hate it. And he said, so do George's friends. So does his family. His collectors really hate it. Everybody else hates it. And I was like, I was dumbfounded. I thought it was so brilliant and so great. And right then, um, Richard asked me if I'd like to come and work at the gallery. <laughs> because I liked the painting. And I said, um, I said, no, I said, um, I want to do museum work. I don't want to do gallery work. And so I ended up, he, he arranged for jobs for me actually at two other galleries, but my job was to teach art history, to teach about the, the paintings that were being represented in the gallery to the sales staff. So I would go once a week and I would teach at these in the evenings to their staff, but I hated it. I just really hated it. And so I, I only made it a few weeks. I just, mainly because I had to pretend that I was really crazy about the art that I was sharing, um, whether I was or not, you know, because it's salespeople. So they've got to, you know, really, and I, I wanted up. to talk about art that I'm crazy about. Yeah. So anyway, he kind of monitored this whole thing and then he offered me the job again. 
And I'll never forget because he offered me $23,000 a year and I almost fainted. That was the most money I'd ever heard of in my life. I just couldn't believe it. I'd been working my way through school at Ann Taylor and I was making 18,000 a year. Thought I was doing pretty good. So when I got offered 23, almost fainted. So, um, but I still said, I'm not sure because my gallery experience was so bad. So I said, I tell you what, I'm going to keep my job at Ann Taylor and um, keep going to school and I'll come work for you for free on Sundays. I'll do four Sundays a month for free and then decide. And so after the first Sunday, uh, I quit my job at Ann Taylor and I quit school. I only had a couple months left, but hey, oh, why are you no, in school you anyway? Did. I did. I quit school. I was, I didn't get my master. It was, you know, I'd finished undergraduate, but right. yeah, because I wanted it so bad. And I thought, why am I in school anyway? And I won't be able to write get this job and so I did and um it changed my life obviously wow it did and it was quite a so this whole thing I, I don't want to encourage any of your you know your <laughs> young, young listeners out there to drop out of school but um this idea of following your heart I think is um is very key it sounds cliche but the journey of life is one to be open to you know Douglas never even you know he didn't, doesn't have a college education. George didn't finish college. And if you really have a passion for what you want to do and you know what you want to do, and yet you, you pass on it because of some rule that's set for you by society, whatever that is, or by your parents or by, I don't know, even by yourself, you may miss that very thing that sets you on, I don't know, the best thing that could happen to you. So, I mean, be careful with those things, obviously. Right, but, right. Yeah. Well, now, all of you, um, you included, but but both George and Douglas, I mean, there's a certain amount of discipline to it. They weren't just, I'll paint a little while. I mean, they, they or I'll carve a little bit, or I'll, I mean, they've, they've learned, I mean, Douglas is making his own tools. There, there comes some hard work, knowledge, and time invested in that. And then you, your passion with the art and being able to come and teach the classes. And there comes some discipline. So you're not saying abandon discipline, but no. really no. finding finding your passions. So would you say that your life pretty much you you found your passions and you've lived out your your passions and dreams? Yes and no. I mean, yes. In that I'm on the journey with those things, but I have so much to do. I have a lot to do. You want to hear one of the big ones? Uh, definitely. <laughs> feel like we're getting a scoop. I, yeah. I am going to see George Rodriguez in my lifetime hanging on the walls of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And that is, then I'll answer your question most definitely in the affirmative. But that's the direction I'm going now. Um, on the other hand, I also find, for example, I mentioned this museum that we did a show in, in um, near Tulsa called the Sand Springs um, Historical and Cultural Center. A little bitty museum. It's a former library um, in a little blue collar community just outside of Tulsa. Douglas loved it so much. And I, part of me inside of me thought, am I crazy? I mean, their show before George was a show of old lunchboxes, you know, the history of lunchboxes. So, and before that, <laughs> I think it was medical tools. And I thought, am I crazy? I mean, I'm bringing George Rodriguez on his way to the Metropolitan Museum of Art to, <laughs> to this place. And it turned out to be 
Amy, it was such a fantastic experience. And you're asking me if I, I like to lecture. Oh yeah, we did the, you know, I did the adult lectures and then I also did all of the docent training for all of them. And then there, you know, the stuff for their members. And then, um, it was so successful. Um, uh, the university of Tulsa had me on their NPR and then all of the different, um, TV stations. And so the, this little museum got absolutely slammed. I mean, biggest thing ever happened to them. And Douglas called it blue dog goes blue collar. <laughs> and he thought that it should be, yeah, he thought that it should be a national tour that we do this blue dog goes blue collar. And I thought, you know what? I like the time it. I would have thought that was nuts, but I love it. Me too. Uh, I love and it. so those things are all part of the path to the Met. And so the journey, yeah, the journey is being there. The journey is what life is all about. Um, if you reach the end of your journey, well, then you better go on to the next one. And we all know what the next one is. <laughs> so, um, it's a little more permanent. So, yeah, I, I, um, I do feel I, I set my mind to things and I, I make them happen. Um, I really do. Uh, and I just that kind of a person. And um, I like to surround myself with people who um, also think that way and do those things. Um, I mentioned my sister and also this curator of exhibitions, Dana Holland Bikert, um, definitely. And I couldn't do these things without them and without Douglas and without others. I mean, we, I have an incredible support system. So that's important too. You can't do them on your own. And also um, they give me incredible feedback that oftentimes changes my mind or sets me on a different path to something. And that's always so valuable, but um, yeah, I, I'm going to see George on the Met and, on the walls of the Met and I have seen it in my mind's eye. I've seen myself walking up, walking up the street and Park Avenue and seeing the banners and walking into the, the great hall and seeing the signs pointing to his exhibition and yeah, he belongs there and um, it'll happen. Oh, I'm sure. I have no doubt. <laughs> um, well, you, I think you alluded to the, book that you wrote the musings of the of an artist wife um mm -hmm. is that's a I, I know you do a lot of writing but um is that a whole different kind of writing than than the um blog and the little journal type pieces that you write is is that a completely um, different process i would say it's it's Yes and no. I mean, it all grew out of those things, the journals and the blogs. And in fact, a lot of the blogs are in there. In fact, everything in there sprung from blogs. Um, but there was this, I was very conscious of trying to weave it into a narrative. Um, so it's both. It's it's designed, or I, I hoped if it was effective, it's designed to be um, read as a narrative or to where you can just open it up to any chapter and read it and learn something interesting about a particular painting or slice of George's life or, you know, any number of things. Um but the book is actually called, it's not called Musings of an Artist's Wife. We had thought about that. Um, it was George who came up with the title for the book. He called it The Other Side of the Painting. And he called it That's that why I couldn't find it. Said, yeah, and he called it that because he said that I am the other side of his hit record. 
There you go. He actually said the real thing he said, which I never say, but I'll go ahead. What the heck now? He said that I'm the B side of his hit record. And I said, you can't call me the B side. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a compliment, but I'm sure he meant it that way. I'm sure he meant it as a compliment. Well, I'm glad you straightened me out on that because um, I was searching for it and I couldn't find it. And I guess I had had in my mind gone ahead and gone with the musings and um so i'm glad you set that straight so people need to look for that because that that is um it's out there yeah <laughs> and that is a, a big part of how you started talking about george's paintings like that so. Yeah, and in fact, I do um, I do readings sometimes, particularly with adult audiences, but I have with younger audiences too, um, especially if I'm in the, the wonderful situation of having an actual painting, the real thing with me that I wrote about in the book. Because um, as you'll see, if you read, read my work, as your listeners will, will pick up on if you read my work i i i don't it's not just hard facts about the history of a painting there are a lot of personal insights um both by me and by george in our discussions about things things sometimes we don't agree on there's a funny whole funny exchange in there that reminds me of about a painting called broussard's barber shop it's one of george's early cajun paintings and it's got these these barbers outside it's from 1970 maybe 74 anyway early 70s might be 71 even anyway early 70s and these barbers are outside cutting hair and they're under this little you know lean to <laughs> that's under a tree that they've set up but they've got real barber chairs and george always told this story about these guys that they couldn't afford a barber shop and so they spent all because they had spent all their money on these chairs, the chairs. and the whole thing and i'm like george is this story true i mean I mean, did you know these guys? Did you get your hair cut there? Did your dad? And he goes, oh, Wendy, come on. After all this time, can't it just be true? <laughs> <laughs> so the book is completely nonfiction. Ha. Huh? <laughs> no idea. That's funny. Well, he believed it and painted it. So I guess it could be true. Why not? It's true now. Yeah. That's right. He painted it. He made it true. Yeah. Yeah. That's fabulous. Um, what do you think one of your major strengths, if you had to think about what your major strengths in life are, what, what would you say? You know, it's funny you say that because um, one of the things I hated hearing the most, I saw it in my journals. I revisited my journals for the first time, really, in depth um, this past December at the seventh anniversary of George's death. And one of the things I wrote in this during his illness was how much I hated that people kept telling me to be strong. I was so tired of hearing that. Be strong, Wendy. You have to be strong. Be strong. What the heck does that mean? Be strong. I, I, be strong. And it was, I'll never forget because, well, I came across this entry in the last weeks before George died. And, um, so to bathe him, I would bathe him in the bed, but I needed help to change his sheets because I would have to, he was, it was interesting because um, even throughout his illness and, and not being able to hold food down and all those things, George remained a really big guy. He was, he was big. He was, you know, even at his sickest, he was over 200 pounds. So I couldn't 
to change the bed, you have to roll them um, and then roll them back. And I couldn't do it by myself. So I would have to get help. And so I, I wrote down this whole exchange with this gal who had come in to help me or everybody was wonderful. He was at Methodist hospital in Houston. They were fabulous there. Shout out to Methodist. They were great. And she said to me after we had done all of this and rolled him and gotten him back in, and then you have to pull him under the arms to pull him up to get him comfortable in the bed again. And of course, George being George, he would laugh throughout the whole thing. <laughs> and she said to me, you are so strong. We don't ever have people in here strong like you. You are strong. And I was so surprised because I knew she wasn't just talking about changing the sheets. Yeah. And I thought a lot about that. And I thought a lot about a, a lot about my sister who told me long after when I was, you know, uh, I was dying. I mean, there's no other way to say it. I was just dying. And she said to me, you are stronger than you think. I am. Mm -hmm. And so are you, Amy. So are all of you listeners. You are stronger than you think. And my strength comes from believing that. I saw it in myself. I saw myself do things that I didn't know I was capable of doing. I would have never thought I could have held it together to be enough to be George's caretaker. You know, and did I always keep it together? No, but I did it. And I did the very best I could do. And I, I, I think for the most part, I, I did right by him. And, but yeah, um, I'm stronger than I think. So are you. So is everybody. You just got to deep down, dig down inside of yourself and find the strength to do things that have to be done, especially those things that if you don't do it and you know that nobody else is going to do it, you better find the strength to do it. Yeah. And you've got it. Y'all do. Well, you know, the interesting thing is a lot of times if when we're so very, very broken, um, life itself has already programmed us what to do. We just have to mm. relax, let go, and just, you know, you talk, you, you hear people say, put one foot in front of the other. And that's, the, I think that's very real. But it's because we've practiced the commitment to other people and the commitment to giving our best. Um, yeah. uh, Tom and I have this, when we talk to young people and we talk about relationships, you know, if we're concentrating so much on the other one, we don't have to worry about ourselves. And so if you're mm -hmm. concentrating so much on someone in their last moments, concentrating on them brings you um, up to where you need to be. So um, that is so true. Uh, I, I have a great deal of respect for what you do and, and what you are continuing to do because um, it's not when you're continuing his legacy, George's legacy, and you're creating your own and creating Douglas's and, and other family members that are within, you know, that whole um, group. It's such a hard process, but you've taken it and um, broken it down enough. I, I don't know. I really believe that that Wendy, you're teaching other people how to do it, and um, oh. very frequently we we all have to face um, 
situations that we don't think we can handle or, you know, it's um, losing a spouse is probably about the hardest thing. Um, and I, my mom is 96 and I guess my dad died 21 years ago. And, um, and, and mom will tell you that some days it's just not easy though. She makes it look like she's just moved on. I mean, she drew a line and became a new person when he died and that's how she survived, you know, to, to be able to, to move forward. So, but anyway, um, I, well, I, go ahead. I would say too, and thinking about your mom being 96, which how wonderful by the way, to have your mother at 96, that's beautiful. Oh, I know. Um, but I would think I, I would say also in, speaking with so many people who have lost their spouses so often with older people for there are so many judgments that are made in our society about everything of course but one of the big things is um with our elderly that okay they're old so we're expected and at least they had this long life together and all those things they're hurting just as much as anybody else or in my case okay so oh she's married again so you know she's over it or whatever. I cry. I have definite moments. George is a daily part of my life and I miss him terribly. I miss him terribly. It doesn't matter, you know, what your age is or what your circumstances are. Um, grief is as individual and unique as people are unique. So there's no rule here. It's, you know, your mom still feels her loss. I'm sorry for, I'm sorry for your loss with your father. Those things, I don't know, they don't leave you no matter your age or. Anyway. Well, if they do, they weren't very much of a part. And I would rather have had the, the deep um, part of life um, to where I, yeah. I, I do grieve or, um, so it's um it's interesting is life itself is interesting um we get the privilege to be a part of so many different aspects and different people so um yeah. wendy we've gone all over the place and, and boy have i loved <laughs> it and is there anything that we've not addressed that you want to make sure that that you do take an opportunity to say well thank you i um it was interesting because prior to COVID, um, the Legacy Art Tour, I was gonna, I was so excited. I was going to hit my 100th school last spring. I was like elated about that. I mean, personally, it's like, yeah, it's phenomenal to me. It's an accomplishment. And I was really, really excited about it. Trying to think how I was gonna celebrate and what I was gonna do special with the kids and the whole thing. And so it didn't happen, of course. I had hit 91, my last tour was in, ended up in uh, Florida in February. I, I partner every year with a wonderful foundation there called the Maddie Kelly Arts Foundation through their education director, Melanie Moore. And oh, she's a, she's a dynamo and I get to do great, great schools in Florida because of her and the panhandle. But anyway, um, my point is, I'm, I am very excited for Life and Legacy to resume once the shutdown is over and COVID permits. So you listeners, if you're interested in seeing what it's about, 
or possibly seeing if I can come to your school. The way we do it is we take all of the requests and then we see what we've got. My sister receives those and we bundle them all together and by region. And then what we've talked about doing post COVID, I was on the road almost all the time pre COVID, but post COVID, I think what we're going to do simply because I've really enjoyed the time at home quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, it's it. hard to get out it's of separate. it. Yeah. I'm going to separate the tour into, um, um, you know, maybe six weeks each spring and six weeks each fall. So if you'll visit my website, if you're interested, it's legacyarttour.org and just get on the mailing list and poke around or fill out the little form about an inquiry or send me an email or any of those things. And, um, love to tell you to read your, your listeners more about it and, and come visit your area. I, I do everything from pre-K. I'm not kidding you all the way up to high school and college age. And I do um, all kinds of adults organizations, not only museum groups, but also, you know, chamber of commerces. I love to do women's groups, book clubs, all those sorts of things. And I, if I can work it in, I don't say no, um, because I, I'm really grateful for the opportunities to share, share George Rodrigue in this way. So check it out if you, if you would. Definitely, definitely will. Well, as we close up, I want to ask if you had one superpower and you had it for 24 <laughs> hours and um, you could use it professionally or personally, what superpower would you choose? How would you use it and why? I would fly. Oh, I would fly. <gasps> I would fly. I often tell the kids, uh, you know, that, as adults, we become more narrow. I put my hands kind of close together when I tell them and I say, I kind of make it like a tunnel. We become cynical with the responsibilities of life. But as children, we are wide open like the sky. You're wide open. Everything is new and wondrous. And I feel like if we could bottle that, we'd live in a perfect world, that wonder. Um, and the trick is to keep that wonder, keep that wide openness to not become more closed in. George had that. George had that wonder all of his life. He had that. It's amazing. Um, but to fly like a bird is with that real sense of that open freedom, not in an airplane, but with the wind on your face and the sun and the blowing through your hair, the wind, and maybe with the birds, I would fly. Awesome. Wendy, thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And so I thank you, thank you. And I'm sure that the listeners will really embrace you. And we look forward to what's next. Thank you, Amy. I enjoyed it so much. You made me forget that I was doing something public here. I hope I didn't say anything. <laughs> Find Stacked Keys Podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes, or anywhere you get your favorite podcast, listen. You'll laugh out loud, you'll cry a little, you'll find yourself encouraged. Join us for casual conversation that leads itself 
based on where we take it from family to philosophy to work to meal prep to beautifully surviving life. And hey, if I could ask a big favor of you, go to iTunes and give us a five rating. The more people who rate us, the more we get this podcast out there. Thanks. I appreciate it. Whatever you do, it ain't nothing on me.